the business model for local print journalism is collapsing, or is it simply shifting? From SDPB Radio, today is Tuesday, February 6th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a look at the Teton Times. Avis Redbear joins us to talk about the move to a nonprofit model and what that means for local and tribal journalism. Legislators debate whether the Department of Health can require new immunizations. Hear that in their own words. If you want to avoid slipping on the ice, slip some socks over your footwear. Our Prairie Doc conversation explores shoes, silliness, and safety. Plus, recruiting and retaining teachers in South Dakota. Teacher Talk is later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The Senate Health and Human Services Committee has been considering a bill to prohibit adding new immunization requirements for children. That bill would remove the health department's ability to require new immunizations. It would also prevent schools and childcare programs from requiring additional vaccines. The bill drew several supporters and critics. Listen in as lawmakers hear testimony on the bill. Do we have any proponent testimony? Thank you, Madam Chair, members of the committee. I'm Senator Julie Frymuller from District 30, and I bring before you today Senate Bill 100. The current school schedule for vaccines was approved by the legislature. This bill simply asks you to pr approve the same process to be followed for adding any new immunizations. With many experimental vaccines that could be considered, please respect the process that is already in place for adding potential vaccines. Thank you. Any further proponent testimony on SB 100? Good morning, Madam Chair and committee. My name is Sonia Vanderdwick. I'm from District 20, Mitchell. I'm here representing myself in support of this bill. As the current law stands, the Department of Health has been given the power to modify or delete any of the required immunizations. By removing this in the other language set forth in this bill, this bill will prevent the overreach of non-elected officials or department from trampling on the constitutional individual rights of South Dakotans. Do we want the Department of Health to have unrestricted power to add more immunizations to the schedule without legislative or citizen oversight? The current language, quite frankly, is unconstitutional. South Dakotans are not beholden to the government. The government's role is supposed to serve and represent the people. If the Department of Health is allowed to continue with unfettered control over what shots our children and grandchildren are supposed to receive, then we no longer have the representation of the people. We must maintain legislative and citizen oversight in order to safeguard our basic human rights and religious freedoms. The citizens of South Dakota deserve better. We all have the right to make our own health care decisions for ourselves and for our children, and to raise our children as we see fit. We cannot continue to allow our government officials to play God, doctor, or parent. Thank you. Any further proponent testimony? Yep, yep. Matthew Monfort, Oral South Dakota. Uh, this bill should pass looking at the history of this law in regards to the Department of Health. That law was established in 1971 with, quote, long debate. Uh, it was also a pediatrician noted that said that you should not be giving a vaccination to a ch child at that time. And then the question and concern was over that this should be between a doctor and the patient, not between the government, the Department of Health, and the rest of the population. You also see in there the top studies on uh, numerous uh, vaccines on the schedule. Uh, the MMR, including the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera, 
and what they are doing to the health of our children as far as increases of ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, et cetera, that this law is incentivizing people to, to injure children. I know that you may not believe that, but I would appreciate rebuttal to my testimony and the testimonies that followed. Thank you. Further proponent testimony online for SB 100. Yeah, good morning. I'm Dr. John Littell from Florida. I've been in family medicine for 35 years. I've had to come full circle in whether I trust these agencies, the CDC, the FDA, and everybody else around because I've been lied to for 35 years. Recognize that we all have reasons and all your citizens have reasons to be skeptical. Skeptical, not just about the new shots, which we've realized now are bad, but even a lot of the old ones, I can say honestly, even of the nine that you require in South Dakota, as I tell my patients, those diseases are either completely treatable or no longer relevant. Thank you. With that, we will move to opponent testimony on SB 100. Good morning, Madam Chair, members of the committee. My name is Jessica Filler. I am the Director of Policy and Legal Services for the Associated School Boards of South Dakota, and I'm here today in opposition to Senate Bill 100. Schools are a safe place for kids. Um, and why are they a safe place for kids? In part, it's because parents send their kids to school knowing that they don't have to fear that their children will contract measles, mumps, polio, rubella, um, because of the vaccines that are put into place. Schools trust Department of Health to know which vaccines are the correct ones to be required by law to put into place um, for school entry. Um, the list of required vaccines is rather limited. Um, by my math, in 2016 was the last time that the Department of Health actually modified the administrative rules relating to vaccines. And uh, for example, it's been four years since the COVID pandemic and uh, Department of Health didn't push administrative rules relating to requiring COVID vaccines for children. Um, there's no evidence that Department of Health has been running rampant with the list of required vaccines um, and the prohibition on additional vaccines, the requirements in this bill, they're, they're frankly not needed. So please oppose Senate Bill 100, thanks. Thank you, any further opponent testimony? Madam Chair, members of the committee, my name is Justin Bell. I'm a registered lobbyist for the South Dakota State Medical Association. I'm also going to be brief. Uh, this bill isn't about the specific COVID vaccination. Uh, it's not about the WHO. It's not about the FDA. It's about what's in South Dakota current law. I want to make a couple comments. One, I don't think there was any comments about how this process has been misused in the past because it hasn't been. More importantly, I just want to talk about what the mechanics of the bill actually does and what's in law. And that is, what it does is it strikes all the rulemaking authority that's already in place right now, meaning there's nothing in code that talks about how many vaccines you need, when you would have the vaccines, and the stuff that's already in an administrative rule. So if you pass this bill in this current form, you essentially take away all the regulatory structure we have about the vaccination programs that we currently have. There's nothing in code that says how many vaccinations you're supposed to have, when you're supposed to take them. Uh, that's all in an administrative rule. So from a, from an illegal sense, um, this bill just doesn't make sense because you have to at least incorporate those into code. Thank you. Further opponents. Good morning, Madam Chair, members of the committee, Beth Dakin with the Department of Health. As you've heard already, Senate Bill 100 would eliminate the Department of Health's rulemaking authority related to to the required immunizations for school entry. So I think it's important to note that there already is a robust process for adding any immunizations to that schedule that does require um, 
the Department of Health to bring that to the legislature. It has to be added to statute first. After a disease is added to statute, it then has to go through the administrative rules process before it can become a required immunization for school entry. So. Um, for many of the reasons that you've already heard, um, our main opposition to this is really related to that uh, rulemaking authority. Thank you. With that, we'll move to committee questions. Reed. Thank you, Madam Chair. A question for Ms. Dockin. If there was from the Department of Health, you know, or some ideas that there should be a vaccine added, what would be the process that the Department of Health would go through? Thank you for that question. So we would have to bring that forward as a bill to the legislature. If that bill passed and became a part of statute, we would then have to go through the rulemaking authority or through the rules process to then, that would be to add the disease. The disease itself goes into statute. Then we would have to go to uh, through the rules process to add the actual vaccine. And so the rules really dictate um, the, the quantity, what that schedule looks like, how many doses are required, for school entry, the documentation process, um, the rules also speak to how the department verifies that children have received those immunizations. We'll move to committee discussion and or action. Madam Chair. Senator Davis. Uh, make a motion at the 41st day. We have a motion to defer SB 100 to the 41st day by Senator Davis. We have a second by Senator Reed. Any comments on that motion? Well, I, I appreciate the concern brought by the sponsor that she really wants legislature involved in the process and I think as we just heard it is very clear that the legislature is involved the rules committee is clearly involved the Department of Health brings a bill forward that the legislature votes on again a lot of the proponent testimony we heard uh, about a lot of other topics and I just don't see how that necessarily applies to what the intent of the bill was trying to do. Will the secretary please call the roll? Senator Bordeaux. Aye. Hoffman? No. Nordstrup? Aye. Reed? Aye. Roll? Excuse. Davis? Aye. Tobin? Aye. The bill was killed in a five to one vote. You can listen to unedited testimony and discussion at sdlegislature.gov. Well, if you have heard the momentary siren call of warmer weather and head outdoors, remember to wear the proper footwear. Ice and snow are still plaguing many parts of the state, so you'll need a shoe with some traction, some insulation, and make sure it all fits properly. Our on-call with the Prairie Doc representative for today is Dr. Jill Cruz and is joining us with more ahead of this week's On Call with the Prairie Doc. Dr. Cruz, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, it's always great to be on the show. We're going to talk all about our feet today and on this week's show. Give us a little preview of who you've got on deck. Yes, so we have uh, Dr. Uh, Nephi Jones uh, from Brookings here and uh, Dr. Prusa also from Brookings. So we, we figured with uh, South Dakota's unpredictable February, having guests that are a little closer to the studio is always a good thing. But uh, with the last couple of days, uh, I don't think travel is going to be an issue aside from fog. <laughs> they just have to walk in and uh, walking in in the winter, though, you might think there's no snow or ice and then all of a sudden it's there. So this week in the Prairie Doc Perspectives, you wrote about trying to figure out the right footwear for the right season. Tell us a little bit about why that's so important and maybe what we're seeing in our urgent cares and emergency rooms across the state. 
Yes. Well, again, again, these uh, essays are written ahead of time, and when I was writing it, there was definitely a lot of snow and ice and slick spots around. Uh, thankfully, with our nice weather and uh, South Dakota's unpredictable weather, a lot of that has gone. But definitely, um, you know, when there is slick and icy weather conditions, you know, we do want people to be careful when they're walking. We definitely don't want anyone slipping and falling injuring themselves, you know, twisted ankles, broken hips. Uh, those sort of things are all very possible with walking on ice. And, and this time of year, it can be unpredictable. You know, one area that's shaded or more protected from the sun could still have some slick spots. So you have to be careful with that. Yeah, I have slipped. I have broken an ankle. It's been a couple years now. And I remember when I was on the little knee scooter and uh, had the boot on my foot, there was a woman who came up to me who had had the same thing happen, and she said, it's going to take a year before you feel better, just so you know that. And that was kind of useful for me to you know, put that time frame in my mind so I didn't rush my recovery, mentally at least. So let's talk about recovering from a variety of injuries with your feet and your ankles. What is the best road to recovery now that we've talked about prevention a little bit? Well, definitely, um, you know, depending on how severe something can be. An ankle sprain can be a mild thing where it's a, you know, a couple days to two weeks to severe where it can take longer. Um, so it's just definitely it's not an all or nothing. Like all ankle sprains will heal within X number of days. It's, they can be graded from a grade one, which is mild, just kind of some stretching of the ligaments, to a grade four where actually some of the ligaments have some tears in them. And obviously a grade four is going to take much longer to heal than a grade one. So grade one, mild, you know, usually my kids, you know, they, they twist on the playground and they're sore for a couple of days and, you know, by the next week they're back to normal. Where grade four, you may end up in a brace and on crutches for several days and then a good two to three, maybe even four weeks uh, wearing some brace and doing some physical therapy and rehab to help strengthen those uh, ligaments and prevent this from happening again because once you've sprained something it's always easier to re-sprain it or re-injure it in the future yeah all right from a foot care perspective or a podiatry perspective what are some of the other things that you see in your office um, as a primary care physician especially that uh, you want to let people know that like this is the kind of thing you're watching for in this area mm-hmm um, definitely ingrown toenails is a very common thing that I run into as a family practice doctor. Those can be very painful, especially uh, when they get infected and then you have to deal with that secondary infection. Uh, another thing, very common, corns and calluses, um, you know, making sure that your shoes are fitting correctly and stuff isn't rubbing. And then my diabetic patients always checking their feet because with the neuropathy, it's very easy to get a sore or an ulcer and then not notice that it's there until it's had a chance to get worse. And if those um, nerves are dead, you're not getting that signal of, oh, this hurts, I should do something about it. So it's easy to miss or ignore something that starts out as a little problem that can become really big. And bad foot ulcers that aren't addressed if they get down into the bone can at times, at worst case scenario, lead to needing an amputation to save the rest of the the leg. Wow. All right. So pay attention to those small problems before they get big and uh, make sure you wear the right shoes and tune in to On Call with the Prairie Doc. It premieres 
Um, this episode premieres, I should say, on Thursday, February 8th on SDPB TV. You can also watch on the On Call Facebook page, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. And our guest has been Dr. Jill Cruz, one of the team there of the Prairie Docs. Thanks so much, Jill. Yeah, thanks. Talk to you later. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at the shifting nature of journalism, particularly in tribal communities and rural communities. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Avis Redbear is up next. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. For 22 years, the Teton Times has been serving the Standing Rock Sioux Nation community. To continue operations, that independent newspaper is turning to GoFundMe. Avis Redbear is publisher and editor of the Teton Times and set up the online fundraiser to address some of the nationwide shifts in the newspaper landscape. She's with us now via Zoom. Avis, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yes, Lori, thank you for allowing me this time. Now, you have much experience in leadership um, in community development, in tribal leadership, and in journalism. Tell us a little bit of the history of the Teton Times and your work there. Um, formerly, I worked for a couple of um, Lakota newspapers, Lakota Times, and Indian Country Today, and that was out of Rapid City. Mm-hmm. And um, my former boss, Tim Gallego, he sold Indian Country Today to the Oneida Nation, and so right around that time is when I moved back to the reservation. And I guess you could say there was a news desert here on the reservation. We didn't have um, a local newspaper. Previously in the past, there was a newspaper called Standing Rock Star. And then before then it was Dakota Sun. I mean, after then it was Dakota Sun. And those went out of business mainly because of the uh, drain on finances. The college put it out, I know Dakota Sun. And it just wasn't making money and using a little bit more money than they had. So it did um, go out of business. So when I moved back, I knew that there was a real need here on the reservation for a tribal newspaper. And so that's how we, I got together with one of my former co-workers at Lakota Times and Indian Country Today. He was a graphic designer and cartoonist. And then uh, one of my um, relatives and we planned it. We did a business plan and we got funding under the tribe's business equity loan fund and um, got a loan from Wells Fargo uh, for $15,000 and we bought the computer equipment and started a newspaper. So that's how uh, it began. <laughs> And a lot has changed in this industry, and a lot of newspapers are folding up shop. You're looking at a shift to nonprofit. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned from um, other newspapers in, in different tribal communities or in different rural communities across the country that says now is the time, if you want to survive, to create a nonprofit model. Okay, yeah, um... I guess this is, it isn't just the national phenomena. Yeah. There's also, um, it's international because there's a newspaper called The Guardian mm-hmm. and that's in the UK and that's a nonprofit uh, digital newspaper. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's something that's happening everywhere. 
to pinpoint it. They don't really pinpoint it. Um, it could be a number of things. One of them was not moving fast enough when the World Wide Web came up. Um, they were slow to um, go digital. And one of the things that happened is like Yahoo, Google, uh, those types of Craigslist became a thing. But those types of um, digital formats, um, they got online right away. And they're able to do like billions of dollars of business, advertising business, which traditionally is where newspapers um, get their income and are able to survive. So like Yahoo, if anybody ever opens up their Yahoo mail, you'll see news on the side there, Yahoo News. Um, what they do really is mine um, news from news gathering sources, and then they put it out and they can charge for digital advertising and everything. So really um, the, the traditional news gathering where you have a reporter on the ground, on a beat, um, gathering the news, making it, and then it can be mined and then somebody else can profit off of it. But, yeah. uh, so that's kind of where it's been going. You not recognizing that there was a digital, um, that things were coming forth, um, a new movement to yeah. digital online newspapers. Tell me what you didn't recognize it. Yeah. Tell me what you're hoping for now with the GoFundMe. We'll put some links up on our website so people can find more information. But what do you want listeners to know about how they can support the Teton Times going forward? Or the new venture, it has a new name. Tell us that. Um, the nonprofit is called Tashia Nupa um, Media, and that stands, stands for Meadowlark and Lakota. In our um, culture, we believe that the Meadowlark speaks Lakota, and that's why we named it that. And um, I'm hoping to write grants. And I've started that process, like I wrote five so far, and like the same day I got two rejections already. It's, <laughs> oh, no. it's a hard, it's a tough thing. But um, the, the reason that budget is 50,000 is um, it would pay for one salary. I did the, uh, the math on that, the printing, the mailing, um, the distribution. We uh, delivered to Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Reservations for six months. That's what that $50,000 budget is. Because I figured it would take me six months to get grants written and get one that's approved. One of the problems with the, I've noticed with the nonprofits is that they want special projects. They want a special project. They don't really, a lot of the foundations really don't want to give operation uh, money. Yeah. And so um, that's going to be an issue. That's why I kind of need some time here just to continue with my head above water. Um, right. Otherwise, one of the options I had was to go out of business or to sell the newspaper or morph into this new, um, I guess, new newspaper with the um, nonprofit fundraising. And so I chose the last one. I really would like to continue operating because our on our reservation, one of the things is that poor communities, more rural communities, um, that's where you'll find a lot of the news deserts. And I would say that, you know, reservations, they are news deserts. 
I know um, a, a fellow um, Lakota journalist that she did start a, a newspaper for a year on the Rosebud, but it didn't make it like through the whole full year or just right past the full year. It was too hard. There wasn't enough advertising and, and she went under. So what I'm trying to do is to just stay in business. I remember when I first opened the newspaper, one of the um, people here in my district, McLaughlin, said, oh, so when are you going to get rich? And <laughs> I was like, never. <laughs> You're never going to get rich in this business. It's a public service, this business is, and there is a lot of sacrifice. I do have um, a lot of commitment to what I'm doing. I really believe in it. And so I've done a lot over the years of sacrificing, sacrificing home life. A few times I had to pay payroll um, with my other uh, payroll. I had to meet it. Um, mm -hmm. Like nowadays, if I'm short on something, I'll put the money in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not, you're never going to get rich, you're never going to be a millionaire. It's a public service. And I just love what I'm doing. Um, I've been a journalist since uh, 1990. So and I want to jump in, I guess, yeah, in my blood. <laughs> and Avis, before we run out of time, I want to make sure because you know this so much better than I do, but I've seen it from my vantage point. We need those local journalists reporting on those local stories because this is a popular place for national media outlets to fly into, do the story they want to do, and fly out of. So in our remaining couple minutes here, just talk about why it's important that that coverage comes from Native people, tribal members, um, doing the work of journalism uh, in, in their own backyards, in their own communities. Oh, good, Lori. I do have a quote that I want to leave you with. Um, but that is what's happening, too, isn't that? It's like strip mining. Major um, companies, newspaper chains will come in and they'll purchase. And there, what happens is your uh, management is elsewhere. They're living outside of the community. They don't know the people. They don't know the issues. They don't know the culture. Um, so if you want to do a, a story, you know, um, they don't know who to contact. They don't know, like, we have tribal laws and tribal agreements with state. We have federal funding. We have different issues. And you need to know that background if you're going to do that type of coverage. You need to know, like, where do I go to research this? How, what is going to affect the story? What, who are all the players, you know? And when you're operating out of uh, Massachusetts or California, you're not going to be on the ground. Mm. And then um, one thing that people are doing nowadays, the trend is to get their news off of their phones, Facebook, so Instagram, wherever they'll get the news off there. And um, that social media isn't really the place for news because there's no accountability journalism there. And um, a lot of it's opinion. They won't have uh, data-driven facts, things like that. Um, that quote I wanted to leave you with was, um, and I think it's really telling of this time. That's why I wrote that quote down. It's um, from Professor Penny Abernethy. Um, and she did a project that was called The Expanding News Desert. Mm. And the quote is, the loss of local journalism has been accompanied by the malignant spread of misinformation, disinformation, political polarization, 
eroding trust in the media, and a yawning digital and economic divide among citizens. In communities without credible source of local news, voter participa participation declines, corruption in both government and business increases, and local residents end up paying more in taxes and at checkout. So she kind of, in a nutshell, said, you know, what we're faced with. Yeah. And um, that's why I want to share that quote is because that's kind of what what the landscape looks like. When I say news desert, Yeah. Um, this is our landscape. And I don't know if this is going to work, too. I'm a little unsure going into the future. Yeah. Is it going to work? Am I going to be able to write successful grants? Am I going to find operating money? I don't know. But I figured... I was going to hang in there till the last dog was hung, you know, just, just fight it to the death until I couldn't know more, you know? All right. We're going to keep following this story. Avis Red Bear, journalist, publisher of the Teton Times, come back and talk to us again. We'll put some links up to their GoFundMe website so you can find it and learn more. But Avis, you're invited back for more on this story for today. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. Let's take a moment now for a tradition of service. Peter Lenkeek is chairman of the Crow Creek Tribe, which headquarters in Fort Thompson. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps and talked with Larry Rohr for SDPB about military service in his tribe. Take a listen. You know, as far back as I can remember, um, I wanted to be a Marine. Um, I come from a military family. We here at Fort Thompson, we have a level of service unrivaled uh, amongst our tribes, amongst other ethnic ethnicities that are present here in the United States. You know, it's common knowledge that indigenous people volunteer at a higher rate than any other ethnicity in this country, and it's more so here. We have a high service level here, dating back to the War of 1812. As a matter of fact, uh, in that War of 1812, uh, one of our chiefs was made a British general. We fought on the side of the British because they told us, you fight for us, we beat them, you get all this land back. And so it's, that, sounds, that sounds like a good deal. You know? <laughs> so we fought on, on the behalf of the British. And, uh, and so our level of service, you know, we've been present in every war uh, up until this very moment. Do you know why that level of service is so high, particularly in this area? Because we need to protect our people. That's how I understand it, and that's how I grew up. We have a lot here to protect, so don't allow it to come here, my uncles would say. You, you join, you go over there. You know, the very first code talker ever come from here in the end of World War I. His name was Sam Crow. That's when they were first going to you know, start looking into that program. And then, of course, World War II came, and they kind of refined it a little bit, and they took, took uh, my grandfather from here and made him a code talker. His name was Edmund St. John. I've talked to other code talkers here in South Dakota, because all these reservations, we all have code talkers on them. The majority of them, we didn't find out they were code talkers until after they were gone. That's how loyal they were, you know. Um, a lot of these things, we didn't find out until they were gone. And then we start finding out their story, and it's like, wow, amazing. 
That's Peter Lenkeek, Crow Creek Tribal Chairman. Lenkeek spoke with Larry Rohr for an interview featured in the next episode of Dakota Life, Greetings from Fort Thompson. That episode premieres on Thursday, February 8th at 8 p.m. Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB-TV Channel 1. Teacher Talk is coming up after the break. We'll focus on teacher recruitment. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. On tomorrow's In the Moment State House, we welcome South Dakota's Secretary of Education, Joe Graves. We'll discuss the department's legislative priorities with an eye toward teacher recruitment and retention. So today, let's surface a conversation we had at the beginning of the school year regarding teacher recruitment on Teacher Talk. Gina Benz is a teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls and a recipient of the Milken Educator Award. Jackie Wilbur is director of the Center of Student and Professional Services at the University of South Dakota. Here's our conversation. All right, Miss Benz, why did you want to be a teacher in the first place? How did you get into this field? I didn't always want to be a teacher. I actually went to college to be a marriage and family therapist. And then I thought, well, I should have a practical backup plan. And You know, I hate to say it, but teaching is a good backup plan for some people. There's a lot of teachers who planned to be nurses or doctors, and then they become high school science teachers, and and they love it. You know, something wonderful about about teaching is you have the same schedule as your children. So I have summer off with my kids. I have winter breaks with my kids. And so when that all clicked for me in college, I changed my mind and decided the goal was to be an English teacher, a high school English teacher. And... I haven't looked back. I think I'll do it for another 20 years, probably. There is a structure to teaching that has always appealed to me, which I think comes from being a student. You know, I love the back to school. I like the new school supplies. I like the breaks. Um, There was something about the changing of the seasons that that created for me a stability that I don't want to say wasn't available at home, like I had an unstable home. But it was something that that's what your lives are structured around. For so many of us, our lives are structured around school. Even if you're homeschooled, a lot of your life is structured around whatever that education looks like. So I totally find it appealing to do that professionally. (laughs) You know, also, you know, with the start of the school year, I don't say welcome back to my students. I say happy new year because it's it's our year. It's when our year really does start. And it is just such a good routine, but it also has clear endings so you can start over and Mm -hmm. do better the next time. Mm All right. So for what we're going to do with these teacher talk conversations on Tuesdays is really, again, step into that teacher's lounge, pull back the curtain and talk about everything from education theory to what it's like to have a bad day as a teacher and to go back and do it again to things that might be happening in peer once we get to the legislative session to just why you still love your job, even when uh, it might be overwhelming, like so many of us feel our jobs can be overwhelming. We're going to start with recruitment. Mm. And Jackie, explain what the teacher pathways 
program is for people who have not heard of it before? Sure. It's an incredibly successful program. I'm really proud of it. Um, it started in 2018 as a partnership with the University of South Dakota and the Sioux Falls School District. And it's really designed to inspire high school students to become interested in the field of education. And so they can take two courses, um, Teacher Pathway 1 or Teacher Pathway 2, and that counts for high school credit, and then it also counts for credit at the University of South Dakota, um, and is also transferable to most colleges in the state. Um, since the time it started, 575 students have gone through the program, and we just graduated our first cohort um, in May of 2023. So those students who were high school students in Gina's class or in other classes in Sioux Falls are now teachers in the Sioux Falls School District. So oh. it's like this very cool full circle moment, um, and we're excited for it to keep continuing. What do you want to add to that, Gina, about the program itself? It is one of the greatest joys of my whole career to nurture students to decide if teaching is for them. And certainly some students realize teaching isn't for them. Mm -hmm. Good. Then they don't waste time in college. They can move on to another career that is more for them. Some students take teacher pathway and they don't intend to be teachers, but they think, well, it could be a good, here it is, backup plan. <laughs> And what USD told me early on was that they had students who were sophomores or juniors who had been business majors or whatnot come into the School of Education and say, you know what, this isn't doing it for me. I took Teacher Pathway. That was kind of fun. How do I get into the education program now? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not a surefire. All these students become teachers, but it's a good way to explore. What is the problem with teaching, not, not with recruitment, but there's a need here, and mm -hmm. it's an urgent need. We don't have enough teachers. Lay out some of the facts, Jackie, for us. Yeah, um, so it's it's not just a problem in the state of South Dakota. It's a problem nationwide. Um, we started the school year with a pretty strong teacher shortage um, on the whole. Some research that just came out of Kansas State University had that number pretty high, like 36,000 vacancies across the, the nation this year. And so um, I think there's just a need to kind of reinvigorate the profession, and that's what we set out to do with the Teacher Pathway Program. My office works with recruitment. Um, it's one of the main jobs that we do. And I think that um, just speaking about teachers in a really uplifting and positive way and remembering all of the good teachers that we've had is, is some of the energy that needs to come into the profession right now. Um, because there has been challenges the past few years. To say that there hasn't would be inaccurate. <laughs> but I also think it's really important that we start to encourage folks and remember all of the reasons that education is important for society. Um, and the Department of Education is doing this too. They just came out with a brand new website um, and they are trying to infuse the state with people becoming more excited about the profession as well. Yeah. Yeah. Gina, when you have high school students and you say, you know, you'd be a good teacher, and they say, oh, no, I would never want, like, what are some of the misperceptions that high school students have mm. about the education field based on the fact that they're in school when you tell them that, you know? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, they just want to get out of school at this point. You I know, know yeah. I know. Part of my job is to recruit students to try Teacher Pathway or, or at least just make sure it's known that this is an option. And I uh, remember one year I went into the Black Student Union Club and I said, how many of you have ever had a teacher who looks like you? And they had not. And I said, would you like to have a teacher who maybe has some of your cultural experiences? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So how many of you might want to be a teacher? Not a single hand was raised. Why not? 
oh, I don't want to be in poverty. I don't want to be poor. Mm. That's the biggest misconception uh. that comes with a lot of people that I talk to, not just this group. And so then I talk about how, you know, teaching leads to a very solid, secure middle-class lifestyle. And we get paid in two ways in our jobs. We get paid with money, but we also get paid with happiness. And so you got to figure out what makes you happy, what makes you enough money, and what is enough money for you. And I tell them, your teachers, we have solid middle-class lifestyles. We have great retirement. There are benefits beyond the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Here's the other thing I think people forget about teaching is that it's not just the first-year teacher salary that you're looking at. There are administrators and there are teacher coaches and you make more money now than you did when you were a student teacher, right? And there's room for advancement in education that uh, perhaps they're not considering either. That is true. However, I have made a conscious decision that I want to stay in the classroom. Mm. I don't want to go into administration. I want to lead from the classroom because um, I'm in the trenches with, with my teaching colleagues. And so what, sometimes I'm a speaker at things or I write things and, and these people know that I'm not removed from the classroom, I'm in it with you. Now, our schools are attempting to uh, have the p- starting pay get larger mm-hmm. and more competitive, that is for sure. So in the Sioux Falls area, for instance, most teachers are starting at around 50,000 right now. You mentioned student teaching. Uh, In South Dakota, students do not get paid to student teach, so it's more like an unpaid internship. Uh, That's not the case everywhere though, and so that's probably the next step in South Dakota to figure out how we can compete there. And Jackie, you probably have more to say about that. Yeah, I have so much more to say about that, so maybe we'll have to save it for another time. But (laughs) legislation did just change, and so, Um, Yeah, things are on the horizon in terms of of getting student teaching or what we call teacher residency paid for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the ways that you think um, the rest of the the public can talk about teachers in a way, like in the way that we discuss um, what teachers do that helps young people see that this is a a viable career for them? How, How do we talk about educators these days? Yeah, I think, honestly, that's the simplest way that we can start to encourage people into the profession. Um, I think teachers and and people in roles like mine need to start doing it themselves. You know, I do remember wanting to be a teacher at an earlier age and being discouraged by other teachers. And I think um, I've just been putting my ear to that a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. I think that we could speak highly of ourselves and that would be a really good place to start Um, because I really value the work that we do I'm proud of the work that we do and my favorite people are teachers and so I think just simply saying what um, what good people exist out there reminding folks about the the good teachers that they've had in their past speaking highly of the profession um, it's a simple switch but I know for me Um, Since I made the conscious effort to do that, I'm just seeing great teachers and great future teachers everywhere. And it doesn't have to be a, you know, fake it till you make it. Oh, no, I'm not Pollyanna. Nope. Exactly. (laughs) It's it's let's find ways to make this profession enjoyable for you. Mm -hmm. I truly do love being a teacher. I am not faking it in any way. But I also took really intentional, concerted steps to find that joy and to find where my flow would be as a teacher that keeps me 
loving this profession. So, you know, I have had to set certain boundaries. I've I changed how I grade. It's you find the strategies so you can find that joy. Let's talk about that, finding ways to make the profession enjoyable for mm -hmm. you. Jackie, what's that been like for you? You know, I do think it started with something as simple as a mindset. Um, I am naturally a, a pretty stressed person. It kind of comes by, I come by it honestly, as they say. And so I made a conscious effort to start addressing that in my own life. And um, once I started addressing my own stress, I realized all the ways that I could make my classroom when I was teaching high school much more relaxed. And, and that made my students more relaxed. And then suddenly it was a much more comfortable place to be. I do think there's a lot of influences from the outside that made me feel, at least at the time, that there was a lot of shoulds and supposed tos. And I think that the times have changed where teachers have more um, empowerment, more control than I think that we sometimes let ourselves have. And that for me just made all the difference to kind of give myself that permission. Things like like just bringing more plants into my classroom because I liked the way they looked or taking like quiet time at the beginning so that everyone could kind of settle down and um, slowing the pace of some things. Nothing major, um, but all of those things just made my, my personal being more relaxed and I think that made me a better teacher and my classroom more comfortable. Yeah, mm -hmm. tell me a little bit, Gina, about things that you've done to just make this, this profession an enjoyable career, not just something that you're going to burn out on in five years? I think the first thing is to make connections. I mm -hmm. make connections with my students. I try to learn a little bit about every single one of them. And those relationships are genuine and important in my life. So that's number one. Secondly, my motto is that learning should be fun. And notice I'm not saying school should be fun or class should be fun, although that's great if they are learning. That means we're actually doing something. People are growing. People are developing. And so learning should be fun. And so how do I make learning fun? I think about what would be meaningful to the students, relevant to their lives. I, in an English class, um, in life beyond the classroom walls, I don't do worksheets when I read a book. Mm -hmm. We talk about the book and make connections and ask questions, maybe do a little bit of research. But I don't make a diorama. <laughs> so those things can be fun don't, and sometimes necessary. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Sure. But mostly I try to make the classroom feel like what the world is outside of the classroom walls. And I never say like real life because tell, I tell you what, in the classroom, that is real life. That is real life for those kiddos. Mm -hmm. But beyond the classroom walls. So hopefully the English classroom is a little bit more like a book club. Mm -hmm. you know. And then when they're writing, hopefully it's very meaningful to them where they can learn more about themselves, others, and society. Mm. What are some ways that uh, you collaborate with other teachers down the hall? Uh, you know, you mentioned being next door to each other in the classroom, the kind of support that you find from other educators. What's that like? It's really powerful. Uh, you find your people. I don't know who said it. I don't even know if it's real, but it means something to me. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you find your teacher people who, who share your teaching philosophies and some who don't because it's good to be challenged. It's good to look at other perspectives. But you're just, you be intentional with who your teacher besties are. And, uh, and they support me both professionally with thinking about grading a little differently or something like that, but they also support professionally. Actually, one of my friends, she once said, in all of her observations, and she's in her 50s, she said, 
teachers seem to have the closest, most beautiful relationships with each other than people do in other workplaces. I don't know if that's true. Mm -hmm. I've only been a teacher since college, but I do feel that. You never stop learning yourself, right? Oh, absolutely. And it made me also think about um, when you were talking about learning being fun, how fun it is to watch students learn. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. to go share those successes with the teacher down the hall just is like, the best part about yes. teaching, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're never gonna believe what this kid said or how this went, um, all the funny things that happen. There's, it's just like real community. Um, yeah, to just be able to be that close to people, they really are your neighbor in this very literal sense. Um, Gina and I even shared a, a portable wall, so sometimes we could hear each other teaching, or <laughs> or maybe my students were a little loud, <laughs> so she could hear them as well too. Uh, but yeah, there's like a lot of learning happens, and the the community building is is so powerful. Yeah, you know, and it's a community because a school especially nowadays, is meant to be collaborative. Mm -hmm. We are supposed to collaborate with each other and be curious, not compete with each other. And yeah. I know in so many other businesses that competition can, it drives people, but it can also beat people down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, you can find companion blogs for Teacher Talk online at sdpb.org slash teacher talk. And on the next In the Moment, we'll talk more on teacher recruitment and retention in South Dakota with South Dakota Secretary of Education, Joe Graves. That's part of our In the Moment State House show tomorrow. That is our show for today. And we hope that it served you also on tomorrow's In the Moment. SDPB's Lee Strubinger is with us. He'll report on millions of dollars of federal COVID money and the race to place those dollars alongside projects that matter. We also get to know people who visit prisons in the service of justice and ask what matters to them in new prison design and location. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we thank you for listening. <laughs>